Please take your Bibles and turn with me now to the book of Exodus. Today we are going to look at Exodus 33. We'll begin in verse 17 and we will read through uh, chapter, or verse 7 of chapter 34. Moses is on the mountain. He is getting, receiving the law from God on the, on the tablets of stone for the second time after Israel's sin with the golden calf. And we read these words beginning in verse 17 of Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, this is the place. There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Let us pray. To the great God who reveals himself to be good, we come before you asking that you would give us your spirit so that we can know the goodness of your glory and grace. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, so that we may be changed by your goodness, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his article on the goodness of God, Rick Hanna gives us three questions that begin to help us think about what it means for people or for actions to be good. He begins by asking, what are some qualities that might lead you to believe that a person is good or not good? What are some actions that have been perceived as not good only later to find out that they were good? And what things do you have to know in order to assess whether an action is a good action or a bad action, thereby making the person either good or bad? 
These questions lead you and I to evaluate what we think goodness is, especially as it is applied to a person. And this is important for you and I to think about, especially as we consider the revelation in Scripture that God is a good God. Moses has asked God to show him his glory, and how does God respond? I will show you my goodness. Moses cannot handle as a sinful human being. Moses cannot handle being in the presence of the fullness of God's glory. So God says, I will show you my goodness. Now, of course, we do know that Moses would have seen God's glory because those two are synonyms. God's glory, God's goodness exists in the fullness of his glory. And so Moses did see a bit of his glory, but God limited, it, limited what Moses saw to his goodness. And Moses learned, as we should, that no human can experience the fullness of God's glory and survive unless there is mediation. Moses has seen God's goodness in creation. He has experienced God's goodness in judgment and mercy. And we will see today as well that not only is God good, but he shows his goodness uh, in general to all of creation and specifically to his people. First, the general goodness of God. Tom Ballinger defines God good, God's goodness in this way. The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. God is tenderhearted and quick of sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all mortal beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he bestows blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. God is disposed to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill to the entirety of his creation. This is a universal goodness, a universal kindness that God showers upon the world. We see this in God's goodness to the whole created order in Psalm 65, beginning in verse 9, we read these words. You, referring to God, you care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. God shows his goodness to creation. We talk oftentimes about the marching of the seasons being a sign of God's faithfulness to his people, but they are also a sign of his faithfulness to everything that he has created. As the seasons march throughout the year, the rain falls, the snow falls, the sun shines, and the plants are given the nutrients that they need to produce flower, to produce seed, 
to produce the beauty that we see in the plants. But as the plants are provided for by God's goodness, the animals are also provided food throughout through the plants. And ultimately, humanity is provided food through both the plants and the animals. And so we see God's goodness in his kindness to creation. We also see God's goodness in general as he is disposed to be kind, cordial, and benevolent to human beings. Every single man, woman, and child sees the goodness of God in this world. Like creation in general, God provides for all human beings. Matthew 5.45 tells us that the goodness of God in the rains and the sunshine falls both upon the wicked and the righteous. The wicked see God's goodness. The righteous see God's goodness. God does not hold back his blessings from people until such time as they profess faith. Your non-Christian neighbor is not denied work or access to grocery stores until they profess Jesus as their Savior. God gives good gifts to people, both righteous and wicked alike. He does not gift everybody equally, but God does provide for all human beings. God also shows his goodness in giving humans gifts, specific gifts, which lead them to do good things. Now, of course, this, these gifts, these general gifts given to humanity stop short of salvation and redemption. We'll deal with that in a few moments. But God does gift humanity with the propensity to do good things. Hospitals, doctors, food pantries, homeless shelters, Acts of hospitality can be taken and undertaken by every single person. They should be taken by every single person in this world. God in his providence and sovereignty has ordered creation in such a way that the relief that he provides from oppression, the relief that he provides from poverty, oftentimes comes from the hands of benevolent, kind, and cordial people. As the children of God, you and I should be willing to affirm that good can be done in this world by other human beings, exercising the good gifts that God has given to men, making the distinction, as Rosaria Butterfield does, between good acts and holy acts. We cannot do holy things without the help of Christ, without the help of Jesus without the life-changing application of the gospel to our hearts. But we as humans have been gifted by God to do good things. God also shows his goodness in restraining the natural processes of the world. Going back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 22, we read these words. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. How do we see all of creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth? We have famine, we have pestilence, we have storms, we have earthquakes, we have all sorts of things that your home insurance policy at least used to call acts of God. And while these things exist and while these things do cause pain, it could be far worse 
God restrains these evidences of the fall that we see within our world. Think about the number of hurricanes that are forecast to cause extreme damage and yet at the last moment weaken or veer off into the open waters. Catastrophic blizzards that never deliver. God restrains and holds back nature. In restraining and holding back nature as part of his goodness, he also restrains and holds back our sin. I won't make you raise your hands to answer this next question, but how many of you have had thoughts of harm, whether emotional harm or physical harm, that you have never acted upon? That they have come into your mind, you have been tempted to act upon them, and yet you haven't. God does that for all of humanity. We are not as sinful and evil as we possibly could be in this world. And hallelujah, this would be a horrible place to live if God did not restrain the sin of all humanity. He does not do so equally, but God does restrain sin. And our passage from Romans 9 earlier teaches us as well that God's goodness is seen in the fact that he holds back. He restrains his judgment against humanity. Our passage from Romans 9 earlier told us that God in his goodness, in his power, holds back his judgment for two reasons. He is patient with the objects of his wrath, firstly, so that they may have opportunity to repent. Why does God not pour out the fullness of his judgment against humanity's sin in the moment that they commit the sin? Because he is giving them opportunity to repent. And that is a goodness and is a mercy. The other reason he holds back his wrath is to build his case against sinners who refuse to repent. When sinners do stand before God, They will give an account for the reasons why they rejected the mercy and grace and goodness of God in restraining his judgment against them. And if their answer is anything different than my only hope is Jesus, then the fullness of that wrath will pour out upon them. God is good to creation in a general way. In theological terms, we call this God's common Grace. It's not common because it's worthless. It's common because it's universal and offered to all. When people deny that God is good, they are denying the good that he showers upon every, all of his creation. They are denying that everything that they have is a good gift from him. They are doing like Nebuchadnezzar did when he was judged with seven years of insanity. They are standing upon the walls of their kingdoms and they are going, look at what I have done in my own power and in my own agency. And God says, no, everything you have is a gift from me. And you will be called to account for how you have used my good gifts. And so we see throughout Scripture, we see throughout our world that God is good in a general way to all of his creation. But God is good in a special or a specific way to his people. 
And part of this goodness to his people is the common grace. We experience the same common grace that the people in the world around us experience. Sometimes, however, as we read in Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, he looks around and he sees that God is showering his common grace upon the wicked in a grander way than he showers it upon his people. But then he is reminded that there are many ways that God's grace is and goodness is showered specifically upon the people of God. The first is in the plans that God has for his people. Jeremiah 29, the nation of Israel has been exiled. Many of them have been exiled to Babylon as judgment for their sin and idolatry. And God says this to them in Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The hardships that the people of God were enduring in Babylon were part of God's plan to bring good to them. They were they had lost everything that they owned and had been kidnapped and taken to Babylon And God says that, yes, all of this happened because of national sin and idolatry, but it will happen for your good. It will lead you to repentance. It will lead you to growth in grace. Paul picks up this idea that the goodness of God is shown in the plans of his people in Romans 5, 3 through 5, where he calls us to have joy in the midst of suffering because suffering brings about perseverance and character, growth in likeness to Christ. For his people. God's goodness is shown to his people in the plans that he has for his people. God's goodness is also shown to his people in the fact that he brings them from calling to glory. And in the midst of that bringing from calling to glory, he makes them more and more like Christ. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that all things That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, everything that has happened to get us from the time where we were called through our conformity to Christ and on unto our glorification is a sign of God's goodness to his people. A sign that God showers in a special way his love and his grace upon those who put their hope in Jesus Christ. God shows his goodness to his people by being a place of refuge and protection Psalm 46, Nahum 1-7 remind us that our God is a mighty fortress. We see God's goodness in his patience with his children. God bears with our weaknesses, with our infirmities. God does not punish us to the depth that our sins deserve. And this, brothers and sisters, is one of the ultimate expressions of God's goodness. He does not abandon us when we stumble. When we fall, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God shows his goodness in being patient with his people. 
God shows the greatness of his goodness in salvation. Quoting Tom Ballinger once again, he says, the penitents will find, in, find God to be merciful. The self-condemned will find him to be generous, to be kind. The, to the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, he is considerate. To the weak, gentle. And to the stranger, hospitable. God's goodness is ultimately shown to us in the life and the work of Jesus to secure salvation for his people. In Sunday school today, we tried to list the cost of our salvation. Jesus gave up the glories of heaven. He set aside for a time portions of his divinity, not not leaving them behind and cutting them off, but but restraining them as he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He who dwelt fully in the glory of God had to walk in the cesspool of sinful humanity. He struggled with temptation to sin. You and I are tempted just simply because of our own desires or because of the whims of the world. Those things did not affect Jesus, so he suffered temptation direct from the mouth and the hand of Satan himself. In ways that you and I will never experience temptation. And yet he did that without sin. And then it cost him his life. As his body was broken and his blood was shed. So that sin could be paid for. And we could have forgiveness. And brothers and sisters that is the ultimate goodness from God. Is salvation that is offered to those whom God knows. And those who who put their trust in God and in God alone. God told Moses that he would let his goodness pass in front of Moses. And then Moses heard God declare these words. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. God's judgment against your sin falling upon Jesus at the cross is the ultimate sign of God's goodness to you. Our God is good. He is good in general to all of creation and he is good in specific ways to his people. A common objection to God's goodness is the existence of evil in this world. And the question commonly goes, how can a good God permit evil? There's two times when you and I typically hear this question. First, it is when someone is in the middle of suffering It's the child of God who goes, if God loves me, why is this happening? Why do I struggle with this? Why do I suffer? Brothers and sisters, you and I know the goodness of God and we can wade into that that situation. Not with a laundry list of all the good things that God has done for them, which may come in time. But with the tears as we weep with those who weep. Knowing that God in his goodness will show his goodness even through the darkness of that situation. And yes, there will come a time when we can remind them, hey, look at where God has been so good to you. But we can also wade into those situations 
with our care, with our concern, with our presence, because we know and are rooted in the goodness of God. The second time, however, when we hear this question is typically by the one who denies the existence of God, saying, well, if a good God existed, there would be no evil in this world. And while we could give them a laundry list of all the good things that God has done for them, that's not always the best way to answer this question. And we need to answer this question with several other questions. The first question is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by if God was good, there would be no evil in this world? The second question is, how do you come to that conclusion? And then we go on to ask questions that begin to make them see and to think that their question really has no foundation in reality. Many, t- many people who deny that there is a God in this world also deny that there is objective truth. Truth is what I make it to be. Truth is what makes me feel the best. And if that's the case, how can somebody say that what I do is evil or what anybody else does is evil? Secondly, we can ask them, are there not times where things that we think are evil actually produce good? War is an evil. I think all of us could agree with that fact that war is an evil. But if we took that to the extreme in the middle of the 20th century, our world would be a far different world today than it is. As we avoid the evil of war, we would allow a greater evil to sweep the land and to change the world as we know it. On a personal level, you and I often see that character growth, personal improvement, and growth in Christ-likeness comes through difficulty and struggle. And so we ask questions of people to get them to see that their belief that evil and a good God are incompatible, that that belief has no basis in truth. Ultimately, the proper question, though, that we want to guide them to see is not, why does a good God allow evil? But why does a God who reveals himself to be holy and hate sin give any kind of good gift to any human at all? And you and I know the answer. It's because God is a gracious God. God is a good God. Psalm 100 verse 5 states, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. God is good to creation. God is good to humanity. And God is good to his people. Let us pray. To the great Father above, we do thank you for the goodness of our salvation, for the goodness of Jesus, and for the power of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see your love, your compassion, your forgiveness, your goodness on creation. As we go from this place feeling the goodness of the salvation that God has given to us and experiencing the goodness that God has given to his creation in general, take this blessing upon you. May God open the eyes of your heart so that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. That same Jesus that says, I am coming quickly. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.
We hope you have enjoyed this sermon from Fairly Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our church and its ministries, please find us on Facebook or visit us at www.arpchurchfairly.org. That's www.arpchurchfairly.org. Have a blessed day.